Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. Kim and I are here again to talk wine with you, and every week we find topics in the wine world and get together and discuss them. First, we'd like to talk about what we Googled ourselves this week. So, Kim, what did you research this week? So I was researching some of the more obscure regions of Italy. Now, I don't necessarily mean some of those bigger, more famous areas, the DOCs or the DOCGs that people generally know about. But I was looking into some of that second tier of wine that is a little bit of a broader area. They're generally known as IGT. So if you see the term IGT on a label, it's more of like a mid-tier, usually more affordable wines and the grapes tend to come from a broader area. But sometimes they're a little bit harder to figure out where that area actually is because they're these less familiar regions. So I had a a few wines that I saw were IGTs and I I knew kind of where the producers were located, but I needed a little bit more information on these particular areas. So I did a little research on uh, on a few of those. A lot of times great values IGTs because they don't want to follow specific laws to get the Mm -hmm. higher level. So they put different things and produce a, a a lot of the more expensive ones we've covered before. Yep, and some are, you know, different styles too. So like specifically there was a rosé from from the Abruzzi region that I was looking up and I'm like, I have no idea what this is. And I looked it up I'm like, oh, Abruzzo. So it like instantly gives you a little bit of a better understanding of, of what those wines are all about. Nice. Was it Montepulciano? I couldn't actually figure out what the grape variety was wow. in there, but my money would be on Montepulciano. Yeah, some yes. was in there. There's got to be some in there. <laughs> so what'd you Google? Well, this week, Kim, I wanted to research with studying Spanish wines. So I wanted to find out what the white grape was in the Navarra region of Spain. So it is Chardonnay. So for me to remember that, I brought in a bottle of Navarra Chardonnay. So I thought we would taste it and see what you think. So give it an open. Kim's good at this. Sounds good. Hope it tastes good too. This was not corked with a natural cork. This looks like a plastic cork. Yeah, so this... A little bit less of a pop. This is 100% Chardonnay from Navarra, which is very north in Spain, close to the Pyrenees. It's unoaked. Hmm. We're getting some apple. I'm getting some apple on the nose. Yeah, very bright. Not that round, creamy, oaky, vanilla spice Chardonnay that we uh, associate with places like California, um, sometimes France. Uh, Some of the warmer regions have richer, more powerful Chardonnays. This is definitely a crisp, clean, definitely a lot of that apple-y fruit to it. So Vega Sendoa? Would you say Doa? Yeah, Vega Sendoa. They've been around for a really long time. 100% Chardonnay, so something unique, Navarra region. If you're looking for something different in the Chardonnay world, this is the... Probably one of the only, I think, authorized white grapes in the area. So we enjoyed tasting it with you. Too bad you couldn't join us.
Our first article today is from the Brisbane Times in Australia. We're going down under today, Kim, for our <laughs> first article. And it talks about, can people have reactions to histamines in wines? And this is our old friend involving sulfites and histamines and people telling us they're getting headaches and allergic reactions, Kim. So let's talk again with our listeners about histamines and right. sulfites. So this is one of those things that we bring up every once in a while when we talk about those not-so-pleasant reactions that people sometimes have to wine. I'm whether it's that you're having a headache or that you get all stuffy, which I know has been affecting me a little bit more lately. I get kind of a head coldy sort of feel or my nose gets a little stuffy and my eyes start to be a little bit itchy. And a lot of those reactions sort of hit people as if they're having a, you know, a seasonal allergy sort of attack. So there's been a lot of conversation and research recently about, oh, maybe it's the histamines in wine that are doing that because just like every other fruit or plant out there, you know, there's this possibility for humans to have a have a reaction to it. And what happens is that your body creates these compounds that sort of fight against whatever is coming into your body. And it, this is the reaction that your body is having to it. But what was interesting about this article is that in, often when we talk about this, the idea is, oh, yes, it's the histamines that are doing it. But this article is like, well, 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 hold on a little bit. It might not be attributed to the histamines. And kind of like how when we talk about sulfites, we always make a point to point out to people that, okay, the sulfite level in wine might be 90 parts per million or 120 parts per million, but there are a lot of other foods out there that have so much more and that people don't have a reaction to. And that's usually the reason why we say, well, we don't think it's the sulfites because perfectly fine eating raisins and those raisins have tons more. And that was kind of what the gist of this article was, was that there are other foods with higher concentrations that people don't have reactions to. Is that sort of the take that you got yeah, as I mean, well? Yeah, I mean, so much. I like getting more information about histamines because I always tell people, don't blame the sulfites, blame the histamines. And then I lose them because they, no one <laughs> understands histamines. But to me, it's it's a natural byproduct of fermentation. It's a, something that happens with fermentation. So histamines are in every wine. Now, in this article, they talked about foods I never thought of having histamines. So you're the foodie, Kim. It said mm-hmm. cheese, fish, meats, yeast, it's all vegetables. Those, yeah, it's all those umami kind of foods. Every, those things that have that real sort of savory quality to it. I was surprising to me to to see the, the cheese part brought up, but I guess that shouldn't be too surprising because cheese is another one of those food products that undergoes a lot of transformation as it goes from its raw state of milk into the yummy goodness of whatever cheese it's turning into. And I have seen some places before that people have a worse reaction to wine if they combine it with, say, blue cheese. And like that can be a terrible combination for a lot of people as far as physically how they feel after they eat and drink. Um, so it was interesting to me that, yes, there was also this por- this portion of the article talking about combinations. And when you combine wine with some of these other foods, that that is when people have a reaction. So like tomatoes, um, that wasn't surprising to me either. It being, a, a, you know, a fruit and, and often these reactions uh, go hand in hand with fruit and flowers and, and things of that nature. So yeah, very, uh, very interesting to see the food component for me brought in, brought and into this. They mentioned that the histamines constrict blood vessels. They talked about food and then they mentioned allergies, symptoms based on the levels, which you talked about earlier. And they said high amounts of histamines would be 32 to 250 milligrams. Now, I don't think they gave a reference point of what wine was, No. but then they mentioned the sources, histamine rich food sources. And the number one thing they mentioned was alcohol and fermented beverage over fermented dairy 
dairy and yogurt. Mm-hmm. So at first it looked like they were starting to say, well, blame the foods, like you were saying. It seemed like it's more food histamines. But then they said the number one thing was alcohol. And I fermented. wonder if it's because like wine is sort of a double whammy. Not only is it made from fruit, but then it also has the, the process of fermentation. And you put the two of those together and you might get sort of this double hit of, uh, of ways that our body could have a reaction to it. And the other thing they mentioned, Kim, too, because this is a byproduct of fermentation, wines, especially red wines that undergo a second fermentation, what we call malolactic fermentation, tend to have higher histamines because it has the second process of fermentation. So that's something for our listeners to think about. Anything you see that undergoes a malolactic, it could be a Chardonnay, it could be red wines. The histamines are probably higher. I wonder if that's one of, one of the reasons why a lot of people have problems with champagne. Because um, I do hear quite frequently from people that they can drink wine, but if they drink champagne, then they're kind of a mess. And the interesting thing with champagne that I try to make sure people are aware of is that if you have any sort of an issue with yeast, that champagne can be an issue too, because the wine itself spends so much time in contact with all of the yeast that it's it's sitting on during its natural aging process. But it could be years that that juice is sitting in contact with, with the remains of that yeast, that if you have an issue with that type of food, or in, whether it be bread or or wine, that, that that could be a wine product to stay away from. And that makes sense because they did mention yeast as one of the food products that create histamine. So that would make a lot of sense. Makes sense, right? And the other thing, Kim, I noticed lately, I saw a few companies that are advertising their wines as histamine-free wines. Have you seen this? I have not. And I'm not sure if it's their natural wines that they're saying they're lower in histamines, but this was something I was curious about. If, if a wine is lower in alcohol, does that mean it should typically be less histamines because it hasn't fermented to dryness? I don't know. This is something I'm going to have to look up. I think it's it's fast, so fascinating that we have the scientists ability to measure all of these things in our food and our beverage. You know, we can measure the residual sugar, we can measure the total acidity, we can measure the histamines, we, we know how much sulfites are in there. Very, I think, interesting for disclosure and learning all of the stuff that's in there. I wish they gave the wine range. They, they said the sulfite range is whatever, 32 to 250, and it said wine is below that. I didn't know if it meant it was below the 32 or it was below the max 250. For this histamine-free wine? Yeah. Hmm. No, for the, in general, in wines, oh, histamines. They, they they told the range of histamines and foods and mentioned wine is lower than that, but I didn't know if it was lower than the low point mm. of the food histamines or lower than the high point. So I guess I would have, have liked to do a little more research point. on this then. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about Mark on his website, franklinliquors.com, and more about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. Another topic we wanted to talk to you about today is the emergence of private branded wine labels. Now, this is something that we really only see in certain uh, retail locations and sometimes in restaurants here in the U.S., but it's a much bigger deal over in Europe and more the rule than the exception, but something that seems to be maybe changing and on the horizon for us here in the States as well. So they're saying in Europe, the private label wines have accelerated, they've grown. In the United States, it seems like the retail 
retail is a little slow to adapt to it, which I don't agree with. I think it's expanding huge in the United States. Mm-hmm. But the EU typically always has a, a following for inexpensive wines. They It's their culture, so they figure everyday inexpensive wine is good. Right. You know, you see that when you go to Italy, you get the jug wine and you love it. Um, but the Europeans, and it, I think it all goes back to the Aldi mentality where for $2, they get a, a nice bottle of wine. And that kind of transferred over here to the Trader Joe's mentality of the two buck chuck, which was a private label for, for them. Right. I, th- I think you're right in that it's it's a culture, a culture difference. And it's even in, you know, places like like England, where they might not necessarily have a wine producing culture, but they certainly have a wine consumption culture. And the idea that wine is a commodity product that you're going to consume every single day. And so therefore, it needs to be very value oriented and have something that is your reliable standard, just like we need sliced cheese to put on our sandwiches, <laughs> and you know, a loaf of a loaf of sandwich bread, the wine, having your, your daily bottle of wine kind of figures in there as well. And it's very, that's very different from here. We we seem to always look at wine as a little bit more of a splurge, I think, or or a specialty buy as opposed to something that every time you go to the grocery store you just put a, another few bottles into your into your cart. Let's define private labels for our listeners cuz I think in our industry there's a definition for it, but the average consumer is not aware private labels versus a major corporation or a major brand. So how would you define a private label, Kim? So so a private label is more something that is created for a specific place to sell their wine. So I would say the closest thing that we have, you mentioned Trader Joe's, that certainly is a grocery chain that has really sold most of their wine under their own brands. So they approached someone that is either a, a winery or a place that has a lot of extra um, juice to make into wine and was like, okay, we are going to use all of your stuff and you are going to make this wine for us that is specific to us and for us. Um, You see this also a lot in Costco. So a place like Costco has lots of their own labels that you can't buy that anywhere else. And it's only meant for that one particular retailer. And they usually can keep the prices pretty low because there's a lot of sort of middle levels that they uh, they can cut out. Did I miss anything? No, I think it's great explanation. To me, it's all about exclusivity, right? Exclusive brand that is your brand. You're not going to find this at any other retailer. It happens for wine clubs. It happens for restaurants. So a restaurant private label is something you can't find in a retail. It's exclusively before the restaurant or the chain. And it helps a retailer in that they are the only ones that have it. So you can't go out and price it. You can't go on the internet and find the price on it. So they can make a bigger margin for, for the product. So interesting, you said, Kim, how they were saying in the US, people are adapting to this or it's slow to adapt. But the, all the trends are telling us that people want better quality wine. So that would kind of go against the private label mentality because most of the private label are lower priced range. Yeah, that isn't really interesting because we've been seeing this trend of people drinking less, but drinking better. But then we also sort of see this growing, not just understanding and awareness of wine, but that more people are into it, you know, and, and you want, and a lot of people are trying to incorporate it into a daily lifestyle, which seems to me to be an opening for for, for these sorts of brands that the quality is decent um, and then maybe the price is a little bit lower and it can become a little bit more of, of a daily or weekly buy for people. So would you say, Kim, that if people are enjoying private labels, is it because they think it's a brand? I, I, I try to say, do, do people care about brands if they can just pick up any label they 
pricey. It's a private label. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, right. I think I think people do What's care about drive brands. It? What do people care about? If is it the price? You think it's? I think it's price. Yeah. Honestly, I do think it's price. And um, these are price typically, you know, good price points people right. want. And I, and I think a lot of it is also familiarity. So just thinking of say, you know, some of the brands that are at Trader Joe's. It's not like, and and I don't mean just like the two buck chuck. Like that. That's kind of their own category. But they have all of these other wines that are exclusive to them. But you might not necessarily, as the consumer, know that that is a private label Trader Joe's brand, except that, you know, sometimes they have the exclusive sign on there. So unless you really have done some research, I think that's a little bit harder to tell. Whereas for the Costco ones, you know, they have their own label on there. So I think that for people who are regularly purchasing those, then they kind of will continue to do so and maybe will say, oh, I really liked this red and this brand. Let me try this other red that has some similarities or have have a similar has a similar label to it so I, I think in that way people will hopefully branch out and maybe try some other ones but otherwise we always talk about do your research and if you're curious about a wine look it up and this honestly makes it a little bit harder because because they are exclusive there is very little information about the wines out there I think you're right on with that because of people who are shopping say Trader Joe's buying the two buck chuck and that's four dollars they might one day go and say I want to upgrade I I like the two by truck. Let me see what else they have. So there's also a private brand at the $10 range. So they might upgrade to that. It's the same private label company, but it's a different name maybe on the wine. So Mm -hmm. they will upgrade. And it's not just Trader Joe's. I mean, all the major players, Target, uh, like you said, Costco's, they all have Walmart. They all have their private label that they want to focus on. And and now the big box stores, liquor stores are doing the same thing. So um, it's it's here for a while. And I'll tell you a story, Kim. There's, There's a big talk going around the industry now about people being nervous about private labels affecting the three-tier system. So if I'm Trader Joe's, we'll, we'll use Trader Joe's, and I have my own distribution network, and I'm just bringing in and distributing that wine myself. I don't need the three-tier system to buy from and distribute for me or give mm-hmm. to me. So there's a lot of talk where that might overtake that three-tier system if everybody just kind of does more private labels than the big brands. Interesting. So and it's big, and some other shows in the future will get political and talk about some <laughs> stuff that's going on. But for now, people are nervous about it. And I, I'm sure you've had this happen to you. Someone will say, oh, I love this this wine and you're like, I never heard of that. And then you research and it's either a wine club, you know, very often it's the Wall Street Journal wine club or something like that. Those are exclusive. They want you to keep staying in the club and keep buying those private labels. They're not going to be in a store. So if you like that, you have to be a member of that club and get that thing shipped to your house. Right. And I do get the question from people for some of my, in some of my private events, where do you like to shop? You know, what, what are your, you know, what are your, some of your favorite brands? And I always tell people that I try not to do any of that purchasing of only exclusive brands because I don't necessarily feel like it's fair to the consumer and the person who I'm tasting wine with because then they're very restricted and they only have one place to go to buy that wine. I do say that my exception is Trader Joe's because there are some some really good values and I, I, I do feel like there are some, some fun wines that they have. But I like to pay more attention to, you know, like a lot of the things that you can get in your store because they're a little bit more widely available. They might find it in a restaurant and be familiar with it and be like, oh yeah, I've had this one and and I know what it's like and I really like it and then they can, you know, then they can buy it. But this idea of exclusivity, on the one hand, probably good for 
the the bottom line of the company that's doing it, but then you have that restrictive nature of it for the consumer. So I'm glad that you're on a different side of the industry that I'm on. So uh, we can sort of hear the the different uh, the different takes on it from from different parts. Well, yeah, a lot of times people ask, like you said, Kim, what's your favorite wine? It's like I, we're in the <laughs> wine business. Start? <laughs> you know, yeah, we like a lot of stuff. Obviously, if you come in my store and ask me what am I liking, I'm going to tell you it's something in the store, right? I'm not going to send you somewhere else to tell you what I like I don't have whereas you can say this is the style you like and people can go out and try to find it I mean it's tough to say I learned long ago in sales in the wine world you don't say you hate any wine you like all the wine some aren't your style uh, but you like you like things for, for you know we like wine right so <laughs> what do you think about I wanted to talk more just a little bit about the restaurant you're in the restaurant industry do they focus I don't want to give out any secrets from you <laughs> is there a bigger focus on bringing in a line that's exclusive to the restaurant a think, bigger percentage um i think it depends on the situation there are some more exclusive locations that i think want more of an exclusive sort of wine list but i think different restaurants have different philosophies you know you might have a restaurant that is banking on the fact that the guests who are coming in and dining want to see something familiar on the wine list like they want to see kendall jackson chardonnay because they're comfortable with that and so for that restaurant you know that is the philosophy that they're adhering to when it comes to their wine list but then there might be another wine list that they want it to be very special and they want it to be something that diners can't get in other places so I think it really does come down to what is the style of that restaurant and and kind of what are they really trying to get across to their guests so that sounds the same thing in restaurant as retail. You you try yeah. to have a mix of unique products, but also things that people people know and go to all the time. You have to have that mix. And that's why we taste a lot to figure out what our customers would like. There's right? a lot of wine out there. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. If you'd like to follow our show, you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, or you can find past episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes. Next, we want to talk about a blog. It was about why online wine recommendations can be an issue, I guess, Kim, right? Yeah, it can be, you know, maybe a little bit more complicated than uh, than the people who developed them uh, were thinking that, that they would be. You know, we see a lot of apps and a lot of websites that tell you that, you know, if you put in a few data points and tell us how old you are and a couple of wines that you like, we'll create like a flavor profile for you and help you choose your next favorite wine. But it, it seems like, you know, we're a little bit more complicated than that when it comes to wines that we're, that we're going to like and that it's it's not as easy as just putting a few things into an app and having them spit out your uh, your next favorite wine. So they were talking about how wine is being sold. And they're saying the most popular way people buy wine is with no specifics in mind. They mm-hmm. go in and they, or they're searching for wine. They have nothing specific in their mind, but they want to shop and they, they want to buy wine. 
Well, I, I love that he started out with a conversation about buying versus selling and that for, you know, a lot of us when we go searching for wine, you're right, we don't necessarily know what what we want to get. Sometimes we do, you know, sometimes, you know, you've got a shopping list and, you know, you know, I need two bottles of this and two bottles of this and you, you're all set. But oftentimes with wine, I think because there's so much variety out there and people aren't necessarily very brand specific like they are with beer or like they are with liquor. You know, there's room for experimentation and there's room for the salesperson to be able to make those recommendations. You know, that's where somebody like yourself comes in professionally. You know, you, you're the person who is there that someone wanders into your store and they're like, hey, I need five bottles of white wine for a party that I'm having tomorrow. And that leads to the conversations about, okay, you know, what do you want? What do you have? What are you having for food? Who's going to be there? All of those questions that you ask to try to find the right types of bottles for them. But that makes it a little bit more difficult in an online and on online oh. online scenario because you know you don't have that face-to-face interaction. You know, it's one thing if you go onto Amazon and you know what you're looking for and you search for it and there it is and you buy it, but it's a little bit harder with wine. Like I said, unless you know that, you know, I need six bottles of Kendall Jackson Chardonnay and I'm all set. So that face-to-face interaction with someone who is helping you do the purchasing is kind of lost in this situation. So a huge amount of people they there was a stat saying why they don't like shopping online. And the number one reason was they missed the human interaction, which I interpret as customer service, (laughs) right? right? So they had five examples of how computers are recommending wines to you. So you go searching, this is how it's recommended. The first thing was it goes by trends. What is the most popular thing? So you say, I'm looking for Chardonnay. It's going to tell you this is what's trending. So you should buy it. So it just gives you the most popular thing in that particular category that you're looking for. Right. And it might be popular based on what they've been selling, what they've been trending. Mm -hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean it's what's popular trending in the wine world as we would interact and tell people, you know, buy this Chardonnay because it's hot right now. This region's hot right now. The second thing, Kim, was profiling. They're saying someone is profiling you when you shop online to match up the wine you like. It's some sort of expert. You don't know who's actually recommending that wine when you're on the computer. They might have a sommelier works for them, but you, you really don't know. It's probably more of a numbers game is what I'm I'm thinking, especially coming from this blog because uh, this is a blog called Wine Gourd. And he writes a lot of articles that combine wine and numbers. So there's a lot of like analytics that he thinks about. So I thought that this part was very interesting because it's like, okay, if they're doing profiling of you and trying to figure out, okay, this is what we're going to recommend to you specifically, there's still some sort of model that is in there, some algorithm that they're working with to try to get to the answer. And so I don't think that it's a person sitting there saying, hmm, this person really likes Pine Ridge Chenin Blanc, therefore I'm going to recommend blah 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 so uh, well, some sites are based on their sommeliers that said geez i, I want to sell people wine or what i like so they it's actually their recommendation so there's actually a person behind actually it a person who they say is selecting the wine See, so that you i would follow go them, for. yeah because you follow that sommelier you trust their palate i would assume you bought one and liked it so then you're going to follow and go by those recommendations the next two things the computer bases the recommendations on is a focus on the people and the focus on the items based on what people like or dislike. So that would be based on the site you're on. The computer knows people have been liking this, people have been disliking that. So they base that recommendation on that or an item, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. What's our most 
popular item, right? So you should try it. The last thing they talked about uh, was finding wines of similar taste. So you might say, which is on your business card, you like this. So Kim says, try this. So the computer can do the same thing without that human interaction. You say you like oaky Chardonnay. So try this oaky Chardonnay. So it's kind of like when you're on Netflix and, you know, you watch a movie and you say that you like it and suddenly there are all these other recommendations for movies that are similar to the one that you just gave four or five stars to. So it uses that sort of technology to then match you up with your uh, with your next wine selection. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, have you've been on the internet and something pops up, says, you know, this wine, because it knows you've been searching something. As if that ever happened to you, Kim, when oh, yeah. something pops up. And I've seen that and I said, geez, that's interesting. I'm going to go on the site and I'm going to maybe order it. And then for some reason, I never go the next step. But <laughs> they do rope me in because it's it profiled me somehow. The computer found me somehow about something I was searching. And, and that's exactly what these computer recommendations are doing. But I, I always like to focus back on the human interaction, which I love to say customer service. Right. If and you, like you said, if you want just Kendall Jackson, you can go online and get it anywhere. But if you want your uh, Kendall Jackson drinker, you're best off getting personal advice of what would be similar. And I think that's really what it comes down to. What makes this such a hard thing to do is that that loss of that personal connection. And, you know, we one-on-one with someone can make the selling personalized. You know, we can really ask questions and figure out what you really want to do. And so I guess the biggest hurdle for these online wine recommendations is how do they personalize that selling and buying experience? So I'm, I'm sure these things will get better as the technology improves and it'll be interesting to see uh, see where this goes. You know what the big thing I was just thinking of, Kim, that, that? you can't get from online? You can't, you can't taste. You can't taste it. We're <laughs> on the same page. You cannot taste. Not you yet. can't taste the wine. Not yet. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and find past episodes of our radio show on iTunes.